Hello and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Brianna Kerber. I'm a policy communications associate at Fresh Energy, and I'm here today to share with you a recording of the third webinar in our Energy Plus Summer Webinar Series. The focus of this webinar was energy plus health. And in this discussion, Fresh Energy's Margaret Sherney Hendrick, Senior Lead of Innovation and Impact, is joined by Emma Hines of RMI, Teresa McClenty of MN350, and Jesse Karshmuhl with the Minnesota Department of Health. And with that, let's begin. Thank you so much, Joe, and welcome to everyone to the discussion today. I am really excited for this discussion. It's a super important and timely one, and we are joined by some uh, really prestigious uh, voices in this topic. So um, I'd like to turn to our panel of experts who are joining us today to discuss the connections between energy and health from tailpipe emissions, natural gas and propane in our homes and other reliance on fossil fuels. These things impact air quality across the state. And air quality, of course, ties directly to public health. I'm so excited to introduce our panelists. I'm joined today by Emma Himes, Health and Air Quality Associate on RMI's Carbon-Free Buildings Program, T. McClenty, Executive Director of Minnesota 350, and Jesse Karshmuhl, an epidemiologist at the Minnesota Department of Health. So in my role leading Fresh Energy's energy transition work, I found myself and in fact all of Fresh Energy staff talking more and more about the ways in which we source and use energy relate to the public health crisis that we're seeing today. This conversation has become increasingly prominent over the past five years in particular, and the three of you with me today are living and breathing literally this work too. So I want to dedicate some time today to focus on your individual roles and work. Uh, let me start with you, Emma. Emma is a health and air quality associate on RMI's Carbon-Free Buildings Program, where she works on climate, health, and air quality co-benefits of building electrification. She also served as a member of the teaching faculty for the Climate Change and Health Online Certificate Program with the Yale School of Public Health. Welcome, Emma. Take it away. Thanks, Margaret. Let me get my screen shared with everybody. Can I get maybe a thumbs up from folks if you're able to see this? Great. Thank you. So today we are going to be talking about gas stoves. And like Margaret said, my name is Emma Hines and I am coming to you today on behalf of RMI, formerly Rocky Mountain Institute. And we are a nonpartisan nonprofit organization working to accelerate the clean energy transition. And personally, my background is in climate change and public health. So I'm going to start off today's really quick presentation by saying that there is a reason that we as a society are hooked on cooking with gas. For about a decade now, the gas industry has been working to keep us hooked on gas through a really long-standing advertising campaign to portray gas as classy and sophisticated and convince us that gas is natural. And I'll share these links to these Mother Jones articles in just a little bit. But what the gas industry doesn't want us to realize is that when you're cooking with a gas stove, you are essentially burning an open flame inside your home, and there are health consequences that come along with that. So back in 2020, RMI spearheaded the publication of a report on this topic with some great partners listed here. And this report synthesized the last two decades of research on this topic, which I'm going to summarize for you here today. 
So when you burn gas in a stove, you are releasing a couple of air pollutants into your home's air. These include carbon monoxide, nitrogen dioxide, and particulate matter. And exposure to these pollutants can cause things like carbon monoxide poisoning, aggravation of respiratory symptoms, and even the development of asthma. And for a not so fun fact for this middle one on nitrogen dioxide, homes with gas stoves have 50 to 400% higher nitrogen dioxide emissions than homes with electric stoves. And you may have also seen a couple of more recent studies come out on gas stoves for some other pollutants, a couple of which are actually leaking from our stoves when they're off. Those include methane and benzene. But I'm going to keep picking on nitrogen dioxide for a little bit because this is where we have a lot of evidence. There's a lot of numbers here on this slide, but what I want to get across to you all is that here in the U.S., we have outdoor standards for nitrogen dioxide, but we still don't have any regulation for our indoor air. And what this means is that certain kitchen activities, things like baking a cake in your gas oven, or even just boiling water on your gas stove can release enough NO2 indoors that it would essentially be illegal outdoors. And this is pretty bad news because we spend a lot of our time indoors, up to 90%, a lot of which is spent in our homes and one in three homes cook with gas today. And there are well-documented health risks for children in particular. So children living in a home with a gas stove have a 42% increased risk of experiencing asthma symptoms and a 24% increased risk of being diagnosed with asthma by a doctor. And there's a few reasons why children are particularly susceptible to air pollution from gas stoves, including things like higher breathing rates and developing lungs and immune systems. And it's also not just asthma that we're concerned about. Exposure to these pollutants can also end up aggravating other respiratory symptoms, leading to IQ, learning deficits, and also cardiovascular effects. So a lot to be concerned about. So I don't have a lot of time today, but with that information, you're probably still wondering, what am I supposed to do with all of this? So I have a couple of solutions for you, and I'm going to walk through them from most expensive to least expensive. So being really cautious to talk about the, uh, the influence of cost here. So if you are particularly compelled after this presentation to get rid of your gas stove, uh, and it's financially feasible, there are a couple of options where households can switch their gas stoves entirely for an electric one. And the options are electric resistance coil stoves, which are admittedly not the best. Up a step from there, we have glass smooth top, which are pretty good. And then a great option for folks is induction. And if any of these technology options are unfamiliar, I'm happy to talk through them more in a little bit more detail later. But maybe you know that you can't switch out your gas stove right now, or you're not completely sold. Maybe you're a renter, for example, and you don't have the authority to. There are some other options that you could undertake. You could try to shift some of your cooking events from gas to electric using the lower cost appliances you already have. Things like a toaster oven, an electric kettle, you could try out a plug-in induction cooktop, which is much more affordable. And then the last thing that I'll share with you all is that regardless of what you're cooking on, gas or electric, there are some great practices that you can take to protect your health. If you have an exhaust hood, always run it while you're cooking. Cook on the back burners to help sweep up pollutants into your hood. Open a window for natural ventilation if you don't have a hood or install and maintain a carbon monoxide detector, especially if you are burning gas. 
Um, so those five minutes really flew by. I couldn't say too much, but if what I've talked about is interesting and you want to learn more about gas appliances and their health risks and the benefits of going all electric, please check out our new toolkit called All Electric Homes, a health professional's guide for more info. And I'll link that in the chat in just a little bit. Thanks everyone. Awesome. Thank you so much, Emma. It's really exciting to learn a bit more about some of the national work that RMI is leading, um, and we'll be excited to dig in a little bit more in the Q&A section coming later in the webinar. So now I'd like to turn to T um, and hear your perspective. T is the Executive Director of Minnesota 350 and has a nearly 20-year background in emergency medicine where she's seen firsthand the impact of climate on people's health. And in addition to that, T has witnessed this at home too. Her youngest son was born with asthma and continues to experience complications from it as a young adult. Many communities of color are hardest hit by the negative impacts of climate change. And I know this is a significant factor in your work at Minnesota 350T. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Great, so uh, we have five minutes, so I will make sure that I don't use my East Coast um, speed and go too fast in these slides. So again, as uh, Margaret said, my name is Steve McClinty. I joined MN350 in February. I'm excited to be part of this amazing team. Um, the first slide, you'll see my family. That's what drives me. That's what drives my work. Um, I have three sons. The young man in the back in the white shirt is the one who um, has asthma. I had asthma as a child and still walks around with a rescue inhaler. And then my oldest son is getting married this year in September, so I'm excited for him. And so that's what drives me. That's what makes me do my work. And then, you know, um, when we all know how we can just get dive into our work, but I like to have some of my um, personal time and I am a runner. And so that's how I reduce my stress. I ran nine marathons and I'm just happy that I can go outside and breathe the air and be able to run. And so that's very important to me. So climate has always been the intersect of my work, working 19 years, 18 years in emergency medicine and then in human services as well. Next slide, please. So our mission at MN350 is to, as you can see on the slide, but we know that environmental justice goes beyond the conservation and individual um, actions. Environmental justice aims to address the um, oppressive and extractive systems that are at the very heart of so many of the world ills that we face today. Next slide, please. So we know that climate um, impacts fall the heaviest on low-income communities and communities of color. Uh, the same communities that oftentimes have the fewest resources available to them. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to join MN350. MN350 does a great job. We have thousands of volunteers. And what we're trying to do is have more um, communities of color be, uh, be part of the work that we're doing. And so that we are representative of the communities that we are trying to provide those resources to. Next slide, please. So we know that race, even more than class, is the number one predictor of the placement of toxic facilities in the US. Black children 17 and younger are 30 to 40% more likely to be diagnosed with asthma. In Minnesota, areas with the highest proportion of residents of color have more than five times the rate of emergency room visits um, that's linked to fine particle pollutions compared to areas with white residents. And I know this firsthand from working in an emergency room and also doing road medicine as a paramedic. 
The climate crisis is projected to cause an increase in mortality rates for Black people who are 41 to 60% 60, 60 more likely to die as a result of fine particle pollution. Next slide, please. So the same oppressive extractive systems that are responsible for our nation's historic and ongoing gaps in wealth, health, education, and more continues. Historically, every significant transformation in our country has left frontline communities behind and widened the gap. And we at MN350 and other of our partners say that we cannot sit back and allow this to continue to happen. If we wanna to move to transition to a clean energy economy, then we need to involve more communities of color. So we need you to join us in this fighting deeply into intertwined intersection. Next slide, please. And that's what we do at MN350. We are um, very much into taking action. We're very much, we have, uh, the next slide, we'll talk a little bit about the work that we do, but we believe that um, in order to raise awareness, we need 37%, the number used to be 35, but 37% of Minnesotans to get involved. That's how we make change. And at the time when it was 37%, it was over 200,000. So two, over 200,000 Minnesotans that we need to raise awareness and go out there, do um, civil disobedient actions and talk to people and educate people about climate. Next slide, please. 60% of Americans report that they are somewhat very worried and yet only 36% ever discuss climate change with family and friends. I know that when I started MN350, I'm often asked, how's your new job going? And it is my uh, direct opening to be able to have conversations with my community that I have not probably had as much conversation with them about climate um, that I am now in, in this position. Next slide, please. So our research shows that a majority of people in the U.S. concerned about the climate crisis, a majority of people in Minnesota want our state to lead in this area. And we've heard from our state to say that they want to be the one to lead in this area as well. But unfortunately, our current policies do not reflect what people really want. Next slide, please. So in order to get the high level systems change necessary to combat um, crisis, we need to activate a critical mass of people and get them to take direct action. Next slide. So at MN350, we work on transportation sector to, um, to promote clean carbon pollution. We support our indigenous water protectors. We have a C4, so we educate our elected officials. In fact, we endorse elected officials who are um, climate friendly as well. Uh, we have a people's climate equity plan to create greenhouse and green jobs and more. So this is the work that MN350 is doing. Next slide. So while climate action is stalling out the federal level, we have every opportunity to make change here and we have every opportunity to make bold local level changes. This is where most of the big movements start historically is in, it's still no different. So uh, we want to highlight the People's uh, Climate Act, I'm sorry, we need to highlight the People's Equity and Action Plan to do some of the work to bring in green jobs for communities and especially communities of color who are hardest hit. Next slide. That's it, thank you. That five minutes go really fast. <laughs> yes, they do. 
Thank you so much, T. I appreciate you being here today and sharing your experience with us. It's clear that your firsthand knowledge of how the climate crisis impacts health is influencing your work at Minnesota 350 and beyond. And in a lot of this work, both for RMI nationally and Minnesota 350 here in Minnesota, state public health departments are strong partners and allies. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Jesse Karshmul. Jesse holds an MPH and a DRPH and works as an environmental epidemiologist at the Minnesota Department of Health, where she leads the environmental health tracking and biomonitoring programs. Jesse's team builds projects to generate actionable and relevant science connecting environmental exposures, health, and equity. And I'm hoping, Jesse, you'll be sharing some of that work and research with us here today. Yes. Hi, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I even see some old um, former colleagues from along the way in this meeting, so it's really excited. I started my career in uh, energy and climate policy, and at that time, we weren't talking about health impacts of energy and climate, and that's what led me um, in, on my path into public health. And um, I'm going to share my screen. Um, so I'm going to talk today about um, public health practice and specific and air pollution and health equity and how we how we interact in this system um, of change makers in Minnesota and the country. Um, let's see, I'm not in presentation mode. There we go. Um, so and, and the Minnesota Department of Health, we have this mission to protect and improve health and that's um, oblique. And so what I want to just share with you is 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 some of the complexity and excitement and connections in what a public health practice and connected system um, looks like. We have many partners and many functions in that systems. And so some of the partners um, are groups like Minnesota 350, universities, communities, schools, legislators. We have regulatory partners at the state and federal level, local public health, healthcare, and many, many others that create this public health um, system. We do public health um, in my group where we are looking at equity um, in terms of data collection, surveillance, and dissemination. That's my kind of our group's responsibility. We work with our colleagues in public health prevention, thinking about indoor air quality, like Emma was talking about, and bringing these things to, together. Um, we do health risk assessment. So we're responsible for generating the science that. Um, um, for regulators and rule makers to have the, the, the levels that are either in our standards or um, considered um, hazardous. We are responsible for doing at the state a lot of analysis and particularly around inequities, which I'll be talking about today. And then we also have this huge responsibility around risk communication and working with all these partners to ensure that we're putting out data that um, to the public that is actionable, that's culturally appropriate, it's accessible. And so all of these, you know, this crazy slide is this um, complex public health system that we work in that is really um, driven by our partners. And that's how we, um, you know, this work that I'm gonna talk about today about health impacts of air pollution in Minnesota has really been driven um, by community concerns, just like T was talking about. Um, in our state. So a I'm gonna talk about a specific kind of um, analysis that we've done um, over the past almost decade um, in a series of reports looking at the impacts of air pollution in Minnesota. 
Um, we most recently released a um, life and breath report in this year in 2002 that was really trying to quantify um, the air pollution's contribution to health and health disparities in Minnesota. So looking um, for those of you um, who are Minnesota um, native or based here, you'll recognize this, um, the metro region. Those are our zip codes in our seven county metro region. And then also looking at some of our smaller um, cities in greater Minnesota. We can use all of the like wonderful science that's produced um, in universities and, and places like the Rocky Mountain Institute, Institute to develop locally relevant estimates of how air pollution is impacting the health of our um, resident, residents. And then we can also use those methods to estimate what um, improvements in pollution could, um, you know, how those could benefit um, our populations here. So what did we find? So, what we found in Minnesota was that air pollution contributed to 10% um, of deaths um, in the Twin Cities metro area. That's over a five-year over a five-year period that preceded COVID. Um, so this analysis, um, these data are are pre-pandemic, um, and about 9% of deaths in those three Greater Minnesota cities that I showed you: St. Cloud, Rochester, and Duluth. And so, and over the, you know, over the years, we've looked more deeply into the impacts of air pollution in greater Minnesota and really trying to dispel these myths that this is only an urban issue. Because um, really in, um, in Minnesota, what we see just like everywhere is that the, the health impacts of air pollution are driven on the one hand by unequal distribution of air pollution, right? We have communities that bear disproportionate impact of those, um, just like T was talking about. But then we also have these inequities in our health system and we have persistent health disparities that are a product of the same institutional racism that produces you know, the siting of, of toxic facilities and communities of color, um, as well as um, in access to healthcare and health producing resources. Um, so, and this, um, you know, map on the side, you can just see kind of where the distribution, the, the spatial distribution of where we see those deaths that the, the high, the distribution of um, deaths that are in part attributable to uh, fine particulate matter. And then I just want to show you, um, you know, this is like, every time I look at this, this is like a slide that we would see in, in a university. Um, you know, in a training class showing kind of what, what do environmental health disparities look like, right? So this is showing for a range of um, cardiovascular um, hospitalizations, asthma, heart attack, um, how those are, you know, distributed across communities um, at varying levels um, where their residents are living under the federal poverty line with uh, the density of black, indigenous, or people of color in those communities, folks without insurance, and folks um, living with disabilities. So, and this is, you know, um, in an academic term, they would call this a, you know, a dose-response relationship. But what this is, is this is a product of systemic um, economic and racist disparities um, that the reason that I, I feel com I felt compelled and it's important to talk about the system of public health is that in public health practice, you know, we are working with those partners with these various um, aspects of 
all the exciting tools that you know we have in public service to make change, to both advance our practice to meet the challenges of the future, to to integrate now long COVID into how we're thinking about you know vulnerability to air pollution, to think about the wildfire smoke that you know is going to be an annual occurrence um, in Minnesota and other um, states in the Midwest. And then also to address the historic and persistent inequities in our system. And that includes in our public health system. And so um, it's really a pleasure to do this work um, over the years in collaboration with um, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, as well as our local public health partners and communities. Um, and what we do now is, you know, I really, um, you heard um, T give one of the statistics that was from this report. And so like, that is how we work together. You know, this is my job and that is, that is our public health system in action, you know, but I will repeat it because areas that have more, um, you know, more BIPOC residents having five times the rate of emergency, asthma emergency department visits is unacceptable. Um, and so that's what the work that we're trying to do um, to, uh, you know, with all of you. Um, that's all I have. And, but I'm happy to, um, I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the discussion and answering whatever questions you have. Thanks so much, Jesse. And I can also say firsthand that the Life and Breath Report is definitely a well-cited document at uh, Fresh Energy as well. So thanks for all the work you're doing. So before we dive into an open Q&A, I want to just take a minute to do a short round robin of questions because there are a few topics I wanna to dig into a little bit more with each of you. So Emma, starting with you, in your national work at RMI, how are you seeing states and cities use health data to influence energy and climate decisions and policy? That's a great question to get at that translation of health research into actual policy work on the ground. And for folks who are, maybe a little bit less familiar with electrification policy. Maybe I'll start there and can go through this little bit piece by piece instead of the fast presentation. But around the country, we have examples of about 60 cities and counties in California that have passed or committed to phase out gas in either new construction, and some of them also specify uh, major renovations as well. And other parts of the country outside of California are starting to take note of that policy action. For example, New York City and DC as recently as last week. Um, but a lot of states are also trying to block this kind of policy action through preemption. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, but what I'll say, generally speaking from a health lens, is that a lot of jurisdictions aren't really considering health in these policy actions. They're more thinking about it from a climate action or maybe air pollution mitigation sense, uh, meaning that gas stoves, like, like I talked about, are often left out or exempted from these policy efforts. Uh, but there are some policy angles that jurisdictions could undertake to consider health a little bit more. Things like appliance regulations that are either zero or low NOx or differentiated range hood requirements for gas versus electric, a lot of things to explore. And then also we need policy to make sure that folks in lower income communities are also able to retrofit their homes. So that requires things like incentive and rebate programs and larger funding programs. Um, but one angle of my work that's particularly compelling is the fact that health advocates are really trusted voices in this policy movement. And so RMI is really trying to educate and elevate and connect health professionals with these policy actions that are happening nationwide. 
Thanks, Emma. And you mentioned sort of coastal examples here too, but I just also want to lift up that RMI is doing a lot of great work in the Midwest with advocates in cities and states as well, especially uh, around work with the Midwest Building Decarbonization Coalition. So I'm excited to maybe dig into a little bit of the Midwestern focus later in the Q&A. But for now, um, T, I'd love to ask you, uh, Minnesota 350 has a really broad reach across Minnesota with advocates in all corners of the state. So how is the health discussion as it relates to climate and energy changing at the local and community levels? Well, uh, we can't do our work without um, our C4, which is our political side of the work that we do. So we have our C3 and C4. And so we have our C3 where we have our uh, clean energy, transportation, and the work that our organizers doing to try to um, talk to our elected officials about funding for electric vehicles, funding for school bus vehicles. Um, and then we have the other side where we are out talking to um, people who are taking transportation on buses about air quality and using, and using their stories to talk to our elected officials about the impacts that they're having, not just here in the uh, metro, but also rural. As you know, Minnesota 350 is statewide, so we have our Bemidji uh, 350, who's out there doing a lot of our native um, work about land, air, and soil, and having those conversations. But a lot of the work we can't do without our volunteers. And so together, collectively, we uh, get together, we talk about air quality, what can we do? How do we educate the public? How do we now go into communities of color? Um, a lot of our volunteer base is predominantly white, and they're doing an amazing job, but now we need to intersect our volunteer base with communities that we're trying to hit because you know what? It's more impactful when someone who looks like me is coming from uh, the lens that they can understand what I'm going through as a, a woman of color living in my household and I'm dealing with bullets and you're coming to me talking about different things that you have to find the intersections of climate so that it can talk about the social issues that they're dealing with as well so that you can intersect those and talk about health. And also I would just say, making sure that we provide the resources that's out there. You know, a lot of communities of color that are faced with air quality health issues don't always have the resources that other communities have. And, and they're not always in the language that's easy for other communities to understand. And so that's why I joined MN350 because of the great work that they're doing for also to in intersect the work that we're doing for communities of color and talking about air quality. Thank you so much, T, and thanks for lifting up the intersectionality of this, uh, you know, climate and energy transition. We, I, I think, just relating back to your slide, this is all about racial justice, and um, you know, we can't exacerbate existing inequities or create new inequities with this transition. We have a lot to learn from our historical mistakes. So. Thank you so much for the work you're doing at Minnesota 350. Um, and now Jesse, um, as you know, Minnesota has uh, clean air when compared to other states, but how does that not stack up when it comes to the day-to-day -day lives of our communities in Minnesota, especially BIPOC and under-resourced communities? Yeah, that's a great question. We um, So in Minnesota, we meet all federal air quality standards. Um, but yet you still saw the magnitude of the impacts that we see and the disparities that those produce. Um, we had last year, um, you know, consecutive days of air quality um, events that uh, broke our air quality index scale. We had to create a purple, um, you know, to get um, to 
um, reflect the, the con concentration and, and duration of those wildfire smoke events um, that also you know, are gonna impact um, the communities of color, lower income, um, lower resource communities, um, thinking about schools and indoor air quality in schools, thinking about um, ability, you know, people who are um, utilizing public transportation versus um, in, their, in their own cars, all of the ways that we um, in the world um, can or cannot limit our exposures. And a lot of that is based on um, um, resources and, and um, historically um, shared or not shared resources. So what like some of the things that we're thinking about is like in Minnesota, the transportation sector is one of the primary drivers of our um, um, national uh, of, of pollutant of particulate pollutants. And so, you know, focusing and we also know that in Minnesota, at least um, the communities that bear the impact of of those um, vehicle miles traveled are not are not the ones who are actually driving those vehicles. And so looking towards policies like the clean cars rule, looking for um, policies that not only reflect like address the the, the source specific problems that communities are facing, um, but also, you know, really thinking at, differently at the state, like how do we how do we prioritize our resources? How do we reflect cumulative impacts and cumulative burden? Um, in our grant making, in our policy making, and how we're doing this. And so, um, you know, one of the examples that I that I love is, um, you know, we as part of the money from the Volkswagen settlement where they were found um, to be have been, um, you know, misrepresenting their diesel emissions. And so there was a lot of money that flowed to states. And so when, when the state went out and asked people, you know, what should we do with this money? Health equity and environmental justice were um, among the highest, you know, the highest priorities. And so the pollution control agency set out with health to say, okay, so how do we, you know, if this money is being used to make grants that are gonna reduce local pollution, how do we ensure that we are actually making those grants go where the pollution and the sources are the highest and where the need is the greatest? folks that have been left out of grant op making opportunities in the past. And so they really developed um, an innovative and transparent um, process to make those grants, you know, to um, prioritize them for areas, environmental justice areas of concern as they are defined, as well as thinking about areas that have higher rates of um, health conditions and health disparities um, that can be caused or worsened by air pollution. And so through doing that, you know, we achieved some um, retrofitting of school buses, um, some major investments in large diesel um, pollution reduction that is actually going to, you know, um, match the, the need, the resources to the need. And so I really think that, you know, thinking towards, you know, that how do we um, in government, listen to what communities have been telling us for so long, which is, I am not just a person that breathes, right? I'm a person that drinks water. You know, I'm a person that, that needs to walk and move and eat. And so all of these things, and when I live in an area with lead, you know, with lead in my water and without grocery stores, all of these things have cumulative impacts. And so 
that is our challenge, I, I believe, in, in state government and federal government is how do we match, how do, how do we update our science, our policy and practice to reflect cumulative impacts? And um, even when we, how do we do that in, a, in some uncertainty um, and, and maybe take our certainty from listening to other people rather than having it <laughs> come out straight in a spreadsheet? I don't know. No, that's great. Thank you. And yeah, including voices that have been historically um, not included um, in these processes uh, is super important and, and definitely an aspect of Fresh Energy's work in particular, you know, making sure that we are hearing from the people who are going to be most impacted by policies what they want that policy to do rather than doing it in a, a top-down way. So thanks for everything that you're doing at Health, Jesse. You know, we don't know what we can't measure. And so it's just a really important work. So I am just now going to uh, do a little bit of a quick lightning round, uh, one question here. So in 60 seconds, can you please share your opinion on what each person in our virtual Zoom room today can do to support the movement around health as it relates to energy and climate? So I'll go from Emma, then to T, and then to Jesse. Well, it's a great question. And I think I'm going to pick up where I left off in my presentation. So the first thing that I would recommend for folks is that everyone here starting today can make sure that they're taking those health protective steps that I went through in their homes, regardless of whether you're cooking with gas or electric. I would also say to explore whether it makes sense for you to shift away from gas, either in a permanent sense or for some cooking events and look into whether there are existing programs that could help you make that transition in your home. I would also encourage folks to do a little bit of a deep dive into what has been found about the gas industry's tactics and how they've been convincing us that gas cooking is superior and really challenge your thinking about, well, is it actually superior or is this just what I've been told? And then lastly, I would say to read up on this larger electrification movement and talk to your neighbors about it, about the benefits to our climate, our air pollution, health, and in a lot of cases, even our bills that we're paying. So those would be a couple of my suggestions. Awesome, thank you. And T, what do you think? Well, I think it's about having conversations with people. I think that we need to highlight the part of climate justice by integrating equity, diversity, and inclusion into everything that we do. Um, and I think we need to shape the narrative but the narrative doesn't have to be so large that um, a lot of people who are new in this space, or at least they think they may be new in this space, or they think that the issue is too big for them to handle, so then they brush it off. So I think we need to shape the narrative and have conversations with them, you know, form, get them inspired by just having everyday conversations with them about climate. Um, and we need to emphasize the, the importance of climate. Um, and we need to make sure that we deliver the right message to the right audience and make sure that the right audience has all the resources and means that they, they need. Some people think that, you know, I worked on immigration reform for a long time and I remember working on immigration reform. Some of them said they were coming to America because of the air quality um, here in, in America would be better. And they um, come to realize that climate is everywhere. And so it's everywhere. So those are some of the conversations that we just need to have about, about climate. When I even had the conversation with my own middle son, when he knew I was taking this job about climate and we tied into climate and health and the health impacts. And what I've seen 18 years in the emergency room that I didn't even really talk about 
um, here today and the impacts of climate and people come in front line and emerge. We're like the front line, you know, they come in, they we see them at their worst. And so those impacts of climate and being able to have those stories and talking to people about here's what's happening with climate right now, we're dealing with heat and heat is everywhere, you know, and so being able to talk about heat and tying those things into a conversation and what can you do and making those asks small and then, you know, asking them to get involved. If they say they can't afford certain things and you know what, here's some way that you can get involved. Here's some way that you can tell your story about climate. That's great. Uh, thank you. And Jesse, we'll end with you here. Yeah, I think um, I would keep something on systems changing and I would, you know, ask everyone to commit to advancing anti-racist policies in, in, in all the systems that you're part of, whether they're your family system, your government system, um, whether you're a communicator in your job, whether you're a data person like me, there's all of us have a, have a role to be and, and a lot to learn and gain you know, from that practice. Okay, I'm gonna hand it back over to Joe for just a quick minute, and then we're gonna dive right into open Q&A. Thank you, Margaret. Um, yeah, before we jump into the Q&A, we have a quick reminder for folks. Uh, Energy Plus will return next week at noon with my colleague, Anjali Baines. She, along with Hugo Award-winning writer, Naomi Kritzer, graduate instructor and PhD candidate at the U of M, Olga Chepikova-Trayan, and poet and songwriter, Ben Weaver, will discuss the intersection of energy and the arts. And of course, while we're on the subject of events, registration is now open for our virtual benefit breakfast on October 13th, featuring Julian Brave Noisecat, a nationally acclaimed journalist and thought leader who has become a force for climate action across movements. You can register at fresh-energy.org slash benefit breakfast. And then finally, for the first time ever, we have created Fresh Energy branded wool socks that celebrate wind, solar, and clean energy. Everyone who donates $50 to Fresh Energy by the end of this month can get their very own pair of these limited edition socks. And thanks to a generous donor, all gifts will be matched, so your contribution will actually be doubled. And with that, I think we're ready to move into the Q&A. Reminder to use that Q&A feature and upvote the questions that you like. I see quite a few have already come in. Margaret, I think you've got your work cut out for you. Great, thanks so much. I will uh, do a little bit here to uh, start divvying up questions, but of course um, our panelists, if you are just burning to answer one, uh, let me know and I'll pitch it right over to you. Um, let's see, I am going to start here with a question from Anjali. So this might be kind of directed towards Emma, but feel free everyone to pitch in. So how do we educate the general public on the health impacts of cooking with gas, knowing the gas industry is running multiple campaigns to support natural gas use? Um, and I can say, you know, we've definitely seen everything from, you know, uh, looping in TikTok influencers to be able to say cooking with gas stoves is the best to, you know, really mobilizing um, labor unions to push back on, um, you know, moving away from from fossil fuels in, in buildings. So, um, Emma, what do you say here to answer Anjali's question? 
Yeah, and this is a great question, Anjali. So thank you for asking. And Margaret gave some examples of some of the tactics the gas industry is taking. So I won't go into too much more detail there. But I would say that we're still relatively early days in pushing this education campaign on the general public. And I think it's going to end up looking really similar to what the um, anti-smoking and tobacco industry fight looked like many years ago. And it's also taking some similar twists and turns as the um, lead and radon prevention programs and healthy homes initiatives that have also um, been advancing over the past couple of years. But the way that RMI is engaging in this education campaign is by um, picking health professionals and advocates as the folks that we really want to elevate this messaging to. So we are leading these sorts of trainings, similar to this one that we're doing here, but very specifically for health professionals and other advocates. We are co-leading working groups like the one that was mentioned earlier with the Midwest Building Decarbonization Coalition. We have a very specific health working group if anyone's interested in joining, a quick plug. Uh, but we are really convinced that health professionals are going to help bring this messaging to the general public and make it a little bit more mainstream and um, sort of separate it out from the climate part of the argument that is not landing as well on everybody. So I'll, I'll go ahead and stop there. Thank you. All right, next I'm gonna ask a question from Julia and I think T, this is directed more to you. So um, I think this is relating back to your presentation. So I don't disagree with T's statement on local action, but as a Minneapolis resident, I've become increasingly disappointed over the last couple of years with the lack of action by my city on climate justice issues. What is the strategy to influence the city when they don't seem to take their racial equity commitment nor their declaration of the climate emergency seriously? Yes, um, thank you for that question. I actually was reading it um, in the Q&A. And I would just say that at MN350, one of the things that we are doing is having house parties. And house parties is being able to talk about climate, talking about people's um, climate equity plan that will bring in jobs great, you know, cleaner housing for um, people. And so we have, well, we have the community of Minneapolis who's having these house parties. And then we invite our elected officials if they, you know, come and attend these things and we get to talk about climate and we come up with a proposal um, for them, some of the things that we want done. And so I think that we need to mobilize more people. We need to attend and go and um, go to the state capitol and knock on doors and say, hey, we want to meet with you and have a conversation with you and hear some of the things that you campaigned and said that you was going to do um, in the arm of climate. You said that when you were elected, you would do these things. And so we need to hold them accountable. At MN350, we have scorecard, scorecards that we grade our elected officials who are saying that they are big into racial equity, big into climate. And then we get to measure their work and you know do their term and say that you get a B, you get a C, you get a D because you didn't do these things that you said that you're gonna do. So I think we need to hold them accountable. And we ask the ones who are coming to the house parties to not only come, but to bring their neighbors or to bring their family, bring their friends. Because again, I say that you, know, you get more when you start mobilizing and getting more people involved and you start raising awareness. And I agree, it's not enough. That's not enough. And so I don't mind knocking on doors and saying, hey, what's happening? You said you would do these things on, you know, for racial justice and you would do these things for green jobs and cleaner air and yet we're not seeing it. And what do you need from us? Great, thank you. 
it's a real call to action too for all the folks on this uh, Zoom webinar. Okay, I am going to um, ask Jean's question here and I'm gonna broaden it a little bit so that we can kind of round robin to folks um, on the panel. So equity tells us that we must insist that all new and restoring public housing units are equipped with induction stoves rather than stoves fired by natural gas. So um, will this be part of I'm going to say fresh energy as well as Minnesota 350s, um, Minnesota legislative agenda next session. And so T would love to pop over to you. I can answer from fresh energy's perspective, but then Jesse, I'd love to um, come over to you as well and see if this is, you know, an area where um, we're going to start, you know, thinking about measuring indoor air quality in Minnesota as well. Cause I know we have heard from many of our, um, partners in this space that, you know, data that comes out of California or comes out of New York is viewed a little bit suspiciously. So having that local data to support indoor air quality ramifications of combustion of fossil fuels and in, in buildings really is um, that piece, that missing piece that we need to kind of underpin some of our advocacy. So um, answering Jean's question from Fresh Energy's perspective, uh, yes, the answer is yes, we're definitely pushing for um, trying to make sure that induction cooking is a requirement in uh, all retrofit buildings and, and new construction. Uh, so I'd say that's a legislative piece, but also part of our building codes advocacy work. Um, and then, you know, really working to make sure that the conservation improvement program, all of our energy efficiency work um, starts to include um, implementation of these types of appliances as well, especially considering how energy efficient induction cooking is. So I'll pop over to T and then maybe Jesse, you can pick it up from there. And I would also echo yes. Yes, um, that is part of our, um, it's on our political platform and it's the work that we're doing with our People's Climate Equity Plan. It's all about um, indoor, um, healthier breathing, uh, making sure that our buildings are green. And so we are now moving that, I would say even today during the primary and then we have general elections coming up then uh, next year. So it is our political platform that we are um, really working with our elected officials and with the community of Minneapolis. And we're hoping that Minneapolis will be the city that will lead um, by example, and then we can expand it out to our rural communities as well. And I guess um, from the state perspective, you know, where we come in is really around implementation of whatever the policy. Um, and so, you know, from what I've seen, we have, you know, programs like thinking about programs like Radon and, and our Healthy Homes program, right? We have the, the more that we can do to be explicit in our legislation, in our um, statutes in our, you know, how we are holding elected officials and decision makers accountable is to ensure that when those things, when those statutes are, are put forward, that they actually include, um, you know, equity in it. For radon test, you know, we have um, what we see over and over again is like, you know, the, there are a lot of barriers to radon for testing for radon. They are, it's not required in multifamily rental properties. There are all of these ways that our, our policies and our system kind of leave people out of that. And then there's a lot of disincentives to test because the money to actually do the mitigation. And so ensuring that 
you know, that we are really looking at this from all angles, um, not just thinking about, you know, single family homes and, you know, individuals who are able and, and you know, want to test and then would have the resources to retrofit. We see the same thing in schools. And I think that right now there, you know, with, um, there is a lot of um, infrastructure resources that are going to come to states um, around indoor air quality, especially in schools. And, you know, I just think that this is the place where folks like you who really can um, understand, you know, can really voice co-benefits of making these infrastructure investments, making these requirements and codes, all of the co-benefits, you know, for health, for well-being, for our economy that those, that those um, can hold. Um, so from our implementation side, you know, um, from the monitoring side, I guess, um, you know, that technology is getting better in terms of having sensors that can do indoor-outdoor monitoring. And we, and we do have some of that in the state um, at the Pollution Control Agency and the city of Minneapolis as well. Um, so I think we're getting there. We just have to, um, you know, wh where we can be most effective is, you know, when there is a, a specific policy or ask that we can, you know, evaluate and, and help with the implementation um, to ensure that we're really achieving the um, broadest and most equitable outcomes. Great, thank you. And you mentioned co-benefits and I'd love to maybe do a minute around Robin for folks here just to, you know, translate what that means. You know, we're talking about emissions today in terms of you know air quality and carbon pollution and climate change but what are some of the other really important co-benefits that we need to be aware of that makes this an equity issue that affects people's pocketbooks that um, you know people need to be aware of to sort of to T's point like translate this into a more tangible um, you know meaningful um, opportunity for their day-to-day -day lives. So maybe we can start with T and then move to Emma and Jesse. I was going to ask um, Emma to kick us off. <laughs> Is that okay, Emma? That's okay. I can start. I think some of the co-benefits that I would like to mention are, of course, better health. Well, better air quality can feel a little bit abstract for some folks. Better health feels a little bit more familiar. But when we start getting into the very specific health indicators, things like less morbidity, less mortality, fewer days of um, school and work missed, better productivity and performance in those settings, um, less health costs, meaning more money in your pocketbook for your everyday costs um, aside from health. Those are all of the health benefits that come along with a lot of these air quality mitigation efforts that we're talking about, whether it's you know transitioning away from gas stoves or vehicle electrification, for example. So those are a couple of the co-benefits that I would mention in addition to climate, which maybe I'll let someone else touch on. Yeah, I think I'm gonna defer this to Jesse. Yeah, I, I think I've mentioned it before, but I can, I can be explicit around you know, from an environmental health perspective, I want to, you know, I want to see the maximum benefit where we are um, addressing those critical exposure windows for children. Um, I would really love to see a focus on, um, on schools and indoor air quality. Let's not forget that the same air filters that can protect us from particulate matter from traffic, from wildfires, can also protect us from airborne pathogens and global pandemics that we do have some experience with. Um, so I think um, you know, when I think of um, co-benefits, I'm, I'm thinking of health, but I'm also thinking about the benefit of communities, 
seeing themselves reflected in solutions and where we are in um, public trust and lack of accountability from government at all levels. You know, you know, it is if I, you know, it is part of my work to demonstrate um, that that we can make this change in government and that we can, you know, working all together. But I, I do think that that is that, that that is a co-benefit and that if we lose sight of having our solutions be co-created by the people who are most impacted by them, then we really lose that co-benefit of civil society and, you know, engagement and, um, and um, democracy, I guess, yeah. And T, I saw you come off mute. Do you, did you want to add anything? I, I, no, I was just going to, what Jesse was talking about, I would just say having communities of color sitting, um, having a seat at the table when decisions are being made. Um, Fresh Energy, you guys do a great job with that. I know some of the work that we are doing, we couldn't do it without you, but I would just say having a seat at the table and the decision-making. Um, so I would just kind of add to what Jesse said. Okay, thank you so much. And I'm gonna do a quick time check. It looks like we have about two minutes left, but quite a few questions to go. I wonder if our panelists have a couple minutes to stick around, if we could get through a few more questions. Um, and thank you so much. Um, so everyone in, invited to stick around for a couple more minutes and um, apologies ahead of time. If we don't get to your question, we'll try to get through as many as we possibly can. Um, so I'm gonna combine one here, I think. There was um, one on youth. Yes. I thought that was a good one. Let's see if I can pull that up. So this is a question from Betsy. So youth are the future. What are we doing to get more youth involved? So T, would you wanna take us away here? Sure. I think it's important. You know, We just had a staff meeting yesterday and we was talking about youth. Um, our Fresh Energy, one of the things that we worked on with our clean transportation we started a, a youth high school. So we did junior and senior internship so that they can learn about climate. And um, our organizer was able to bring in 11 student organizers. And it was the first time they got a chance to work on climate and it was about um, electric school buses. So they talked to their elected official about why it's important to have electric school buses, the air that they breathe right on the bus. And then they did a, a presentation at the very end to the community about why it's important. So they did an ask. And we love that program so much that now we are now moving to our C4 side. And so those high school students were done and we said, hey, now you can learn about why it's important on a political side of climate to be able to get um, elected officials and officers gonna really support the bills that's important to move some of these policies that we need moved um, from a state level. And so I think that is very important. In fact, we are now, MN350 is moving into our strategic plan and our strategic plan is inclusive of having the arm of some of the work that we do is included with our youth. So we are gonna continue having youth fellowships. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I'm gonna combine some questions here on local action. So um, I think there's, general frustration and disappointment that we're not seeing action on the federal level on climate um, and larger energy transition, which as we have discussed today relates directly to public health. Um, we've talked a little bit about some examples of, you know, cities in California that have moved forward with local action. Um, 
we've also talked about some frustration about the pace of action that we've seen with some Minnesota cities. So um, are there any cities in Minnesota that have taken climate seriously? And is there a model um, to help cities with things to do, uh, the action to take, and the pace and scale at which action needs to occur? And I'll, I'll open that up, you know, Minnesota or the, or the Midwest. I don't know. I think Minnesota wants to lead in this work. And I think that right now, um, because Minneapolis is such a large city, um, that is a city that a lot of the initiatives and the projects are like started there. And I think some of the other cities are trying to figure out, is it working? You know, what are some lessons? Maybe we can try it in another um, city. But I would just say Minneapolis has a lot of initiatives out there. I can't say that they're successful, um, but I get that they're trying. So I don't know if I can truly answer the question, but I can just say from my six uh, months working at MN350, the work that the um, team has been doing and the work centers around Minneapolis and some of our rural communities. Yeah, T, I'd, I'd echo that. I mean, I think if folks, again, are looking for an opportunity to take action, um, I think we've mentioned a couple of times now, the city of Minneapolis is undergoing a climate equity and action plan update. Um, and I know that they're looking for public engagement. Um, so, you know, I think this is a great opportunity to get involved and make your voice heard. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that there are some other good Midwestern um, examples too. I know the city of Chicago, for example, just did a huge climate action plan update and they're talking about, um, you know, these are some actions that have been made possible through energy legislation, but um, they're talking about doing, you know, a stretch code um, that would enable cities to, um, you know, require standards for building that would be going above and beyond state code. There are some real limitations um, about, uh, codes work in the Midwest uh, with state preemption issues, but um, I do think that there are some good examples in, in the Midwest, and it's really important to look for examples in the Midwest too. You know, um, we have a super cold climate and we have a very different political landscape, but if we can make durable, you know, policy changes in the Midwest, that is um, a really good proofing ground to then translate up to uh, federal standards. So um, however difficult the work is in the Midwest, it's also especially important. So um, just encourage folks to keep your shoulder into the work and, and not to lose heart. You know, now is really the time to stay involved. Okay, and I see we have a lot of questions here um, around uh, appliances in our on our homes and buildings that are you know also burning fossil fuels that aren't stoves so have some questions about water heaters and furnaces so what are the options for um, converting those appliances off of fossil fuels and what are the some of the you know uh, facets to consider in doing that type of transition yeah, that's a great question. And I can go ahead and kick us off. Um, I should start by saying that I focused really heavily on gas stoves today, but gas stoves are not the only gas appliance that matters. The reason I focused on gas stoves is because we spend a lot of time in really close proximity to our gas stoves, often without ventilation or without great ventilation. So a lot of exposure, but then because we spend a lot of time with our stoves, people also feel really strongly about their stove choice. Uh, whereas they care a lot less about their furnace and their water heater as long as it works. 
So for those other home appliances, we do have really great, efficient all electric options. So for either furnaces or boilers, you could switch out to an all electric heat pump. We have better cold climate heat pumps than ever before. And we could share some resources out on their efficiency. For water heaters, we have heat pump water heaters that are also great options. And keep in mind that when we transition those appliances to all electric options, that because they're vented, we will put less and less air pollution out into the ambient air pollution environment, um, create less ozone, which we know can be a problem in a lot of Midwestern states. So there are a lot of benefits of the transition of all home appliances and, and other commercial buildings too. Like I saw a question on commercial kitchens, for example, to answer the question specifically on OSHA, I haven't seen as much work on um, air pollution from gas stoves in industrial or commercial kitchens, but what I have seen is some movement on extreme heat in kitchens. And we know that in commercial kitchens with a lot of gas burners going at once, it can get very hot in those kitchens. So OSHA has been interested in introducing some uh, rules around extreme heat, and we would hope to fold in some stuff on kitchen electrification in there. Um, but that's another, another point to add on. Great, thank you so much. And I see in the comments that um, our colleagues over at CEE who helped to run the Air Source Heat Pump Collaborative um, are being lifted up. And that is just a really excellent resource, especially if you're looking for a contractor who is um, very well-versed in heat pump installation and maintenance. Um, so uh, I encourage folks to go check out that website um, if you're at all interested in converting over some of your fossil fired appliances. Um, and I'll also just make a plug, you know, we've had good discussion about air source heat pumps, but there are also other types of heat pumps like ground source heat pumps. And, you know, we're particularly excited about those, um, especially in colder climates, if you're using the sort of constant um, temperature uh, of the earth or the low-lying aquifer, you know, you are not having to worry about any sort of heating reliability associated with cold climate cutoffs that you see with air source heat pumps. Um, and if you're interconnecting in a district capacity, a lot of buildings um, with ground source heat pumps, uh, you get um, the scale of efficiency that sometimes puts you, you know, two to three times more efficient than um, an air source heat pump. So for a lot of reasons, we're super excited about ground source heat pumps too, and would love to um, have conversations with folks about those if they're interested um, as a follow-up. So, yes, and we will we can chat through some some resources as well. I know, uh, Joe, uh, on ground source heat pumps, we have a good blog that we could drop in, and um, maybe we could drop in CEE's uh, air source heat pump collaborative website as well into the chat. Um, so I will just make a final call to our panelists as we've gotten through all of our um, questions from our audience. Are there any points that you'd like to um, end with that we didn't cover in our questions that you'd like to, to leave our um, audience with today? We'll start with T and then move to Emma and then move to Jesse. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. And I don't have too much to add than what I've already said is just the when we're out having conversations about climate, think about the neighbors and some of your friends and family um, and those who are not so familiar with climate and they and how they look at it as a really big picture thing that is too big for them to even think about and scale back that conversation so that and tie it into something that's more meaningful that's gonna get them you know, to want more. You know? So begin to have those conversations and don't be afraid to have conversations and 
I would just say when you're sitting around the table and you're trying to make some decisions and there's no one of color, then I would just say to you to really think about that. Um, the decisions that you're making, that there's no black, brown people who are in the room while you're making some of those decisions. And I would just ask you to really consider that. Thanks T for that. I guess I can jump in next. I think what I would want to wrap up in this group with is just the uh, finding from RMI that health has really been the narrative that has cut through a lot of the noise in the electrification movement, because regardless of what side of the political aisle you fall on, your thoughts on climate change, how you feel about gas versus electric, we know that these, um, these health studies are helping us to understand the personal risks and the societal risks of burning fossil fuels. Um, so RMI has been working really closely, like I said, to move us forward in this energy transition by connecting in health advocates um, to you know, connect the groundbreaking research that's happening in some of these universities with the policymakers that are actually going to act on it. Uh, so keep using health as a narrative because it really does work. Those are great points. <laughs> um, and I just thank you again for hosting this and, and inviting me. And I really enjoyed learning from uh, MNT and um, all of you. Um, I think as like, I, I'm an epidemiologist and um, a lot of times we talk about evidence-based solutions. And I really want to challenge everyone that when you are thinking about evidence and data that you not be limited in what that means. And I think that often we, um, we, are, we want the numbers to point us down a path or we want, um, we want there to be this, you know, some formula that makes it real for us. And that, that doesn't act, that's not how science works. And we actually have to, um, we actually have to do things and, and implement them and try them and then measure and, um, and we can have you know, data that guides us, but data, data does not make decision, people, people do. Um, so um, yeah, that's my thought. Okay, well, a huge thanks um, to everyone who has joined us today and an even bigger thank you to T and Emma and Jesse for sharing your insights, uh, your experience um, and your words of encouragement as we continue to mount this energy transition and really think carefully about the public health uh, impacts and um, you know, potential improvements that we can make by doing this uh, type of transition um, equitably. Thank you for tuning in to the audio recording of our webinar. I wanted to give a special shout out to our series gold sponsor, Great River Energy, and our series bronze sponsor, Sunrun. If you are hungry for more information about Fresh Energy's work or want to get involved, visit fresh-energy.org. I also wanted to take this opportunity to invite those of you listening to Fresh Energy's special summer event we're calling the Fresh Frolic. It is an all-electric party at Malcolm Yards in St. Paul on August 24th. And we invite you to join us for induction cooking demos, an EV and e-bike petting zoo, electric lawn care displays, and more. Registration is required and space is limited. So I highly recommend heading to fresh-energy.org and clicking on events in the upper right corner for details and to get signed up. As was mentioned during the webinar, we have also just announced the keynote speaker for our 2022 virtual benefit breakfast called Our Shared Challenge, Together We Can Do Hard Things. 
The breakfast will take place on October 13th, and we're pleased to welcome Julian Brave Noise Cat, a nationally acclaimed journalist and thought leader who has become a force for climate action across movements. Register at fresh-energy.org slash benefit breakfast. And finally, you can support Fresh Energy's work by making a donation today. If you donate $50, we'll even send you a pair of wool socks featuring cool graphics of wind and solar. Visit our website at fresh-energy.org and click donate in the upper right corner for more. Thank you for listening.